Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, New Covenant. Happy Mother's Day to the mamas. I uh, was looking at what was up next in our study through the book of Revelation as we go through it verse by verse, and we land on Revelation chapter 8, or we would land on Revelation chapter 8 this morning, where the seven trumpet judgments start, and hail and fire mixed with blood are coming down from the heavens as God exercises his judgment, and trees start to get burned up, and forests, and people are dying, and I'm like, what a great message for Mother's Day. Because for all of those young ones that have ever disobeyed mama, that's a small taste right there. (laughs) However, there are many men in my life that are much wiser than I that said, yeah, might want to do something different. So we're going to take a little break from Revelation this week. We're actually in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be taking a look at a woman that was quite bold in her ask of Jesus when it came to her sons and what she wanted to see happen in her sons' lives. And I love what we have to learn from Mrs. Zebedee. In fact, we don't even know her first name. We just know that her last name is Zebedee. We know that she is the mama of two of the three of the innermost of Jesus' disciples. She is the mama of James and John. And so she's going to come up and ask Jesus something quite boldly. We'll see what that is in just a moment. Let me start with this. There's a guy named Melvin Newland, uh, a pastor over on the East Coast, and he says, mothers are teachers. Mothers are disciplinarians. Mothers are cleaning ladies. Some moms are gardeners and mowers of lawns, and most mothers understand that baking cookies is more important than washing windows. Amen to that one. Mothers are nurses and doctors and psychologists and counselors and chauffeurs and coaches. Moms... Any of y'all worn all those hats before? What do you mean, past tense? Some of y'all are still doing it. Mothers are developers of personalities, molders of vocabularies, and shapers of attitudes. Mothers are soft voices saying, I love you, and mothers are a link to God. A child's first impression of God's love. Mothers are all of these things and much, much more. Let me just say this morning, we appreciate you moms. I know that today, for many of you, this is just like a mountaintop day. Exciting day to spend with your kids, to spend with your spouse, your loved ones, and for some of you, this is a hard day. Maybe you have lost uh, a child. Maybe you have a kiddo that has walked away from you and walked away from the Lord. Maybe you haven't been able to have kiddos. Uh, We just want you to know that regardless of where you're at, this is what we have a church body for. So we can rejoice together with those that are rejoicing and excited about what Mother's Day stands for, and then we can mourn together with those that mourn over loss. Um, but that's why we have a church body to do this together. So don't think that you have to pretend like things are great. If things are great, fantastic. If things are not so great, please let fellow brothers and sisters in Christ know. It's what we gather together for, and that's why it's so important that we are here together, in person, face-to-face, so that we can love on each other and we can live out the one and others that we read about all throughout Scripture. Okay, we're going to take you to Matthew chapter 20. You don't even have to stand up today. It's Mother's Day, so you get to relax a little bit more. But Matthew chapter 20 is our passage at hand. I'm excited for us to see some really neat principles that we can apply, not just for moms, but for dads and for any of us that are going to have any kind of investment in future generations. In fact, if you know Jesus 
and you will have any type of influence over anybody ever, there's all kinds of amazing principles that we're going to learn from Mrs. Zebedee this morning. It starts in Matthew chapter 20. It begins in verse 20. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now there's something about Mrs. Zebedee. She knew about Jesus. She knew about his kingdom. She must have heard him teach. She also must have heard him say something that bothered her or disturbed her. Because she walked up and she said, hey, you know what? These two... They've been learning your word since they were babies. I've raised them up to know Yahweh. I've raised them up to know who the Messiah was going to be. And they've trusted that you're the Messiah. And so I want great things for them. Now, if you're wondering why she asked that question, because I kind of did. I kind of look at her and go, well, that's kind of pompous. And that's kind of presumptuous. And it's kind of prideful that she asked that for her sons. Well, if we go back and read the beginning of the passage, you'll understand why. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus is about to tell a parable, a story about the kingdom of God. And what she hears disturbs her just a little bit. Listen to this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one's hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, am I, doing you, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Can you see why this bothered Mrs. Zebedee? Well, wait a minute. My sons are the ones that were hired at the first hour. They've worked for you their entire life, and you're telling me that they're going to get the same pay as somebody that trusts you on their deathbed? That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. Here's what he's saying. 
Regardless of whether you trust me on your deathbed or you trusted me at the age of five years old and believed in me your entire life, you have to understand why you're going to heaven. It's not because you trusted in me at the age of five and you did all these great things for me. You're going to heaven because of what I did for you. Now, understand the difference between salvation and rewards. Our rewards in heaven will vary. Paul talked clearly about that and taught clearly on it from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There will be some that will have different rewards in heaven. But as far as going to heaven, it's not dependent upon anything that I've done, everything on what Jesus has done. And so Jesus says, these folks are going to go to heaven just like you are. Well, there's a second thing that he said. It's in verses 17, 18, and 19. He said, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the way, and he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus took the 12 aside by themselves, but I'm guessing that James and John probably ran home and told mom what Jesus had said. Mom, you're never going to believe this. But this Messiah that we've been following, the very one that we've been looking for, he just told us now he's going to die. So not only does she and her boys hear this parable about going out into this vineyard and working all day and getting paid the same wages as others that trust him on their deathbed, now they're finding out that the very one they've been following is going to die. So as you can imagine, Mrs. Zebedee has this sense of urgency. Well, I better get to Jesus quick. I need to tell him what I'm hoping he's going to do for my boys. Now again, from hearing all of that, we might go, whoa. Mrs. Zebedee, that's a little prideful, but actually, I love her heart. I love where her heart is at. I'll explain to you what I mean. Go with me back to verses 20 and 21, and hopefully what she says will make more sense now that you have the context of the passage. In verses 20 and 21, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. What is she doing? She's praying. You're like, wait a minute, but Jesus is right there. Right, exactly, but what is prayer? We go and we talk to Jesus. What is this lady doing? She's in a posture of humility and prayer talking to Jesus. She's actually praying to the Lord, but while he's right there. And what is she praying for? Well, he asks her what she wants, and she says to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Here's what I am I am praying that we will all pray for when it comes to future generations. Actually, I'm hoping that we pray this for all of us. But pray that future generations and that we ourselves will be a part of God's kingdom. The greatest thing I think that we could pray for our kids, what I started praying for my girls before I even knew who they were, was I was praying, Lord, I want them to be a part of your kingdom. I want them to come to know you more than anything else. Because it doesn't matter how many volleyball games they win, how many softball games they win, how great they do at gymnastics, whether they get straight A's, if they were to become CEOs or presidents of some type of company. What if they did all of that, but yet they didn't know Jesus? What difference does it make? It all just goes by the wayside. Well, Mrs. Zebedee seems to recognize that the most important thing that could possibly happen for her boys is that they are a part of God's kingdom. And so whether you are raising up a kid or a grandkid or you just know somebody of the next generation, would you please be praying at least once a day? And by the way, this is our first action step. We're going to have some action attached to what we're looking at this morning. But would you pray at least once a day that the next generation might be the greatest generation of Jesus followers that's ever lived? Pray big for them. 
We're down on this generation. Oh, they're always just tied to their phones. They're lazy. They don't want to do anything. Well, I tell you what, much of why they are the way they are has to do with expectation. What do the previous generations expect of the up-and-coming generation? I'll tell you that I'm trusting God for big things with this up-and-coming generation. I will tell you that we've got a generation right now that is my, my daughter's ages that can spot a fake and a phony in a heartbeat. They're looking for something of substance. They're looking for somebody that's actually genuine. Could we be those people? Could New Covenant be that church that invests in the future generation so that they invest in future generations? Paul seemed to find that important. When we were at our staff retreat together this week, we dug into the book of 2 Timothy. If you don't know much about the background of 2 Timothy, Paul is probably two to three weeks away from death, awaiting execution. And he knows it. He tells Timothy right there in 2 Timothy, I've been poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. So young man, listen to what I'm about to tell you. This is important. You need to go out and make disciples that make disciples. You need to take the things that I have taught you and entrust it to other faithful and reliable men that will be able to go out and teach others also. There's this trickle-down effect. I am praying that my kids are a part of God's kingdom. In fact, I want to take that a step further. In verse 21, we also see that she prays that they would be participants in God's kingdom. It's one thing to be a part of God's kingdom. It's another thing to be a participant in God's kingdom. Mrs. Zebedee was praying that her boys would be actively involved in the work of the kingdom. I am praying that the future generations would be actively involved in the work of the kingdom, but that starts with us. Are we actively involved in the work of the kingdom? There are churches that are gathered together right now all over our great nation that are filled with people that will sit in a pew on Sunday morning and then do nothing with it. May that never be said of New Covenant. May we never be those people that are content with just sitting in a pew, filling a seat, leaving and going, way to go. Great music, great message, moving on, see you next week. I pray that that would never be the case. What I'm praying for is that God would get a hold of our hearts in such a way that we can't leave here without telling somebody about Jesus, without serving somebody as if they were Jesus himself. I am praying that my kiddos will be participants in God's kingdom. But the only way that they're going to do that the only way that you and I are going to do that is if we take a hold of that second action step that you see in your notes, and that is this. Prepare the next generation to be the greatest generation of Jesus followers that's ever lived. That's huge. Are we preparing them? There are certain things that I have read or had the privilege of getting to study that have impacted my walk with Jesus, and one of them is a book called The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus by a guy named John R. Cross. If you have never picked up and read The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus by John Cross, I would encourage you, get it. It's worth the whatever $15 investment on Amazon. But he walks you through from, from the beginning of creation to recreation and everything in between, the, how the law and the prophets and the atonement and all of that point to Jesus. But he does three things that we're about to, to talk about this morning. And he doesn't just tell you what we believe, but he tells you why we believe it, the evidence that there is, and then how to live that out. So if you get a chance to pick that up, it's divided up into 15 chapters, but then it's divided up into even smaller chunks, 52 small sections, each being anywhere from about two to five pages apiece, small enough to where every day for 52 days you could sit down with your family, and even your young ones can handle two to five pages. 
of getting to walk through systematically how God has made himself known throughout human history. It's fabulous. But let me begin to walk you through what Scripture says about preparing the next generation for being the greatest Jesus followers ever. The first thing that Scripture tells us is teach them what we believe. Teach them what we believe in regards to a biblical worldview. There are certain things that you'll hear around here over and over again because I like it to be simplified when it comes to developing a biblical worldview. Even using those words, you may be going, what? I I don't even know how to articulate what a biblical worldview is. Remember, it's this simple. Can you answer five of life's ultimate questions? If you can, you've got a comprehensive biblical worldview that you can explain to anybody. By the way, what is a worldview? It's the way you view the world. How do you see everything that you come in contact with that is a part of reality? Here are the five questions we have to be able to answer. Where did I come from? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the answer to where we came from. Why am I here? Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and the book of Romans tell us exactly why we're here, and it's all for the glory of God. The third question that we ask is, if I know where I came from and I know why I'm here, what's gone wrong with this world? Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapters 1 through 3 give us the answer as to what has gone wrong with the world. The fourth question is, how can what has gone wrong be fixed? John chapter 10 and Romans chapter 10 give us the answers. John chapter 3 is another. They give us the answers as to how is what is wrong with the world can be fixed. And the answer is all wrapped up in a person, not a philosophy, not a religion, not an idea. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. And then our fifth and final question in our biblical worldview is, where am I going when I die? And again, John chapter 10, the book of Romans and the book of Revelation give us those answers, as well as multiple other places in Scripture, but that's a synopsis. You now have a comprehensive biblical worldview that you can walk somebody through. Can I tell you where you came from? Can I tell you why you're here? Can I tell you what's gone wrong with life? Can I tell you how it can be fixed? And can I tell you where we're going? There's your biblical worldview. Now, in order to be able to do that, we have to be able to do letter A. Can I teach people what we believe in regards to a biblical worldview? You can if you answer those five questions. Scripture tells us to do this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 are what we call the Shema. The Shema literally means to hear or listen. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you think Moses found it important to make sure that we're teaching future generations the word of God? All he said was, just talk about it everywhere. When you're walking, when you're lying down, when you're eating, when you rise up, when you walk into the house, when you walk out of the house, when you go to the marketplace, just talk about the Lord everywhere. And I have had people say to me, well, I want to be careful that I don't shove it down my kids' throats. I did about a little over a decade of youth ministry, and the number of times I heard parents say to me, all right, you're my kid's youth pastor, and I hear you say I should tell them they have to go to church, but... I don't want to shove it down their throats and I don't want to make them do something they don't want to do or they will reject it later. I'm like, okay, let me just ask you this question. Do you make your kids go to school? What are most people going to say? Yes, and why? Well, it's important. Hmm, 
Stop for just a moment and think about that for a second. I'm going to make my kids go to school because getting an education is important, but I'm not going to make them go to church. What did I just tell my child? It's not really all that important. If you want to go and spend time with Jesus and his people, that's fantastic. If you don't, don't worry about it. Listen, what they're going to do later in life is they're going to look back and go, Mom and Dad didn't see that it was important enough for me to go to church, so they never made me go. So why bother at this point? All right, I know I'm probably stepping on toes, so I'm going to move on. Here we go. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Listen to what Paul says. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I am praying that we are investing in the future generations to a point where they are also in turn investing in the generation that comes after them. And that they will invest in the generation that comes after them. Now, not only are we going to teach them what we believe in regards to a biblical worldview, but why do we believe it? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter tells these persecuted believers who are scattered all, out, all throughout the Roman Empire, hey, you know what? People are going to come against you for your faith in Christ. They're going to do everything they can to drag you away. They're going to persecute you for your faith in Christ. Be ready to tell them why you believe what you believe. Please don't ever tell your kids, I'm telling you to believe this because I said so. Tell them why. Tell them why you believe what you believe. I love what Peter says, but be prepared to make a defense. I'm not totally down on the translation of defense. A better translation of that word apologia would have been to make a case for. Be ready to make a case for your belief in Christ. It's a judicial term that's used in a court of law. Now think about that for a moment. He's using a judicial term in a court of law to say that this is what we're supposed to be doing when it comes to our walk with Jesus. In other words, what does it take to convict a criminal? Evidence. Do you know that the evidence for your faith in Jesus, your evidence for your faith in this, these 66 books being the actual word of God are all grounded in evidence? It's not blind faith. We don't have to take anything that we believe blindly. Yes, we have faith, but even if we understand the word faith, the word faith in the Greek is the word pistuo. What does pistuo mean or pistis? It actually means belief to the point of conviction. Do you believe Jesus to the point where you're absolutely convicted? To the point where he is the one that you would not only live for, but you would die for? Well, moving on, not only do we want to teach the future generation what we believe, and, and we want to teach them why we believe it, but how do they live it out? What does it look like to be a man or a woman that treasures Jesus above all else? What does it look like to be a man or a woman that's getting to know Jesus and that is also making Jesus known? Well, James writes about this. It's in James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. And before I read it, let me just note that cults typically go to James and say, well, see, James is the book that tells us you have to do good works if you ever want to go to heaven. 
Let me make something abundantly clear. When James writes to his hearers, he addresses them as believers. So the whole book is already written to people who are believers. It's not about how to become a believer. It's how to live out your life as a believer, if that makes sense. It's not about what I have to do in order to earn my salvation. It's what I'm going to go and live out because I have been given salvation freely by the Lord Jesus. Are we clear on James now? Now we can dive into James 1. 22 to 25, he says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let me remind us that it's because we're saved, it's because we're loved, it's because we're highly favored that we go out and serve Jesus, not the other way around. Remember, religion and false religions and ideologies and cults will always teach that you've got to do a certain number of works if you ever want God to let you into heaven. Whereas scripture makes as clear as can be that because of the fact that there is no good work that I could ever do to earn my way to heaven, Jesus had to come down to us. Jesus had to bring God to us because we could never ascend our way to God. I am hoping and I am praying that none of us sitting in this room would ever be ashamed of the Jesus that we serve, who's God in flesh, who brought heaven to us when we could never get there on our own. Would anybody in this room say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that who we are? I'm hoping and I'm praying that that is the church body that we are. Mrs. Zebedee, she wasn't ashamed. She walked up and said, Jesus, I'm not ashamed of you, and I don't want my boys to be, so I want you to do great things with them. Now, she didn't really understand what she was asking. No, Mrs. Zebedee, I'm sorry. Your boys don't get one spot at my right hand and one spot at my left. There are a lot of people that would love that position. Do you know what they do get to do? Well, what did Jesus tell them? Well, they get to be slaves. And they get to serve in my kingdom. And by doing so, they're going to actually imitate me because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I'm sure when she heard that, she just went, this just went from bad to worse, man. I don't want my boys being servants. I don't want them dying. But I tell you what, one of the greatest things that could happen and did happen to them was that Jesus got a hold of their hearts and they become some of the greatest servants ever. And then they not only lived for him, but we also know that they died for him. Now, if you're wondering, is Jesus worth it and where is he when I'm struggling and when I'm suffering and what if I did have to die for him? Is he there? Well, let me give you an illustration. I want to just share a closing story. I will tell you if over half of you are crying by the time I'm done, I've accomplished what I set out to do. I, I had a hard time making it through this one first service. I don't even know why I share this, but I'm going to share it anyways. You all are familiar with the extremely dark time that we had uh, during the time of World War II when Nazi Germany had risen up and concentration camps and labor camps were springing up all over the place and the Holocaust was taking place. And we got a hold of a journal of a man who he... And his wife and his two sons and his mom and dad got taken to this concentration camp. They were actually in a labor camp. And the rules of the labor camp were as long as you can work, you live. But as soon as you're too weak and you're too frail to work, you're exterminated. 
started with his mom being the first one uh, brought to the extermination chamber because she couldn't work anymore. His dad was second. And he just knew that the next one in line was his son David. His youngest boy was a frail little guy, and uh, he just knew that he was probably going to be the next to collapse. But he'd come back day after day after working super long hours in the labor camp, and he would see his oldest son Joshua, he would see his wife, he would see his youngest son David and just rejoice. But one day he comes back and uh, he sees Joshua in a corner just crying and praying. And he says, tell me, son, it's not so. He said, it's so. David couldn't work anymore, so they came for him. And when they came for him, he looked up and said, Mom, I'm scared. Mom said, don't worry, I'll go with you. And she took him by the hand and she walked in. I'm looking at my girls in first service. I'm like, how do I do this? So when they were here, I'm like, I'm just picturing my wife going up to my kids and going, I'll go with you. You don't have to do this alone. Think about that. That's Jesus. I know men don't cry. It's like allergy season right now. (laughs) But I'm thinking, wow, what a picture of Christ. He said, you know, you don't have to go through this alone. You don't have to die alone. You don't have to walk through hardship alone. I've already gone through it. He already walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And he looks at you today and he says, you know what? If you're scared, if there's something that frightens you, whether it be the future, whether it be finances, maybe it's even death itself that you are just scared of, frightened of. Jesus says you don't walk through that by yourself. I take you by the hand and I walk with you through it. That's the Jesus we serve. What a blessing. We don't serve some far-off God. We don't serve a distant deity. We serve the God who made himself known. He came in flesh and he died for us. Isn't it great that I got most of you to cry on Mother's Day? Happy Mother's Day to all of you. With that, can I spend a moment and just pray for us? What I'm hoping and I'm praying that we got as a result of this morning is that not only did we see the heart of this mom and the boldness that she had for her kids, the boldness that we need to have for future generations, but I'm hoping and I'm praying that you see the heart of Jesus too. Jesus really does want the best, not only for future generations, but for all of us that are sitting here. And he's proven it by going to the cross for us and then rising again for us and then making us very aware of the fact that as we're going to study in the book of Revelation when we get towards the end of this year, he's coming again for us and he's taking us to a place that we don't deserve to be. I don't know if we realize this or not, but do you realize that we don't deserve heaven? I certainly don't. I look back over my life or I look into the mirror like James talks about in James chapter 1 and that reflection that I see of myself, I'm reminded daily, I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve to be with Jesus. I don't deserve to be in a place where I am forever going to be blessed, forever going to be cared for. But then I also get taught in scripture that I'm exactly right. I'm not going there because I deserve it. I'm going there because of the grace and the goodness and the mercy of Jesus. And if God is that gracious and that good and that merciful, how can I not help but tell others about him? And again, that's another one of those things I love about Scripture. Jesus isn't telling me to leave this place this morning and go tell others about him out of obligation. He's not telling me to do it out of guilt. He's telling me to go out and do it because I love him. Let me ask you one more question this morning before I pray. Would anybody unashamedly say that they love Jesus? Would any of you unashamedly say, I treasure him above all else? If that's the case... Let's just go give him everything. 
I'll make you a promise. You won't regret it. Can I pray for us? Jesus, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you. And Lord, we don't even deserve to be allowed to come before your throne room in prayer, and yet you allow us to. Lord, you are completely different and set apart from anyone and everything in all of existence. And yet, Lord, you chose to come to us in human flesh. As the book of Isaiah says, there was nothing about you in the flesh that would be desired. Lord, you didn't come with pomp and circumstance. You didn't come surrounded by fanfare, but instead, Lord, you came into meager circumstances. You came and were born into a family that was poor and didn't have anything to offer. And yet, Lord, you came and you radically changed people's lives, radically changed people's eternities. And Lord, we are those very people that whether we realize it or not, spiritually are poor. And yet you seat us in the heavenly realms and you make us the richest people that have ever lived. And so, Lord, we are so thankful that regardless of who we are and what we've done, that, Lord, you've called us into your family. That, Lord, you have prepared a place for us. And that, Lord, you are going to bring us to where you are at. Lord Jesus, we just pause now and tell you that we love you and that we want to see your name made known. We want to see you be the one that becomes famous throughout Albuquerque. Lord, until every person on this planet knows you, may we continue to preach the gospel. Lord, we take time now to tell you that we love you and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Gang, just a quick reminder on your way out, the youth are out there selling flowers. Um, one, just to tell moms that we love them, and two, also to raise up some funds for uh, their up-and-coming summer camp. There's not any price tag on flowers, it's just all by donation. So um, if you have yet to do anything for your wives or moms, hint, hint, it is Mother's Day. There's flowers out there. Um, grab them, uh, get your wife or your mom some flowers. Let her know that she's loved. Let her know that you have seen Jesus in her. And again, let me encourage you, go out and share Jesus with anybody that you come in contact with this week because Jesus is worth it. Amen? All right, gang, have a good week. And Lord willing, we will see you next Sunday. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.